Uh, again, it comes back to having the curiosity and frankly, the the humility to say, look, we don't know exactly how this is going to play out. And sometimes people don't communicate because they think, well, we don't have the exact answer. And I think that sometimes can be a mistake. Um, you've got to keep people up to date with what you know. And I think if you if you do that, you do that regularly, you build a track record of, of that honesty, people will trust you. And I think, yeah, there's that old adage, you know, trust arrives on a tortoise and it leaves on a horse. And that's what happens in transformation. So the minute the, the audience don't feel like you're leveling with them or you're being completely honest with them, you tend to lose them. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is a transformation leader, advisor to Australia's leading CEOs and companies, and the author of the upcoming book, Great Change. His accolades speak volumes, having worked for or spearheaded groundbreaking strategy, performance and technology transformation programs for iconic institutions such as NAB, IBM, PwC, BNZ, and was recently the CEO of New South Wales Land Registry Services. Having worked across multiple geography fees, including Southeast Asia, the UK, Middle East, and in India, he is a principal of Great Change Consulting. He is an adjunct professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, a graduate of Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program, and has completed director's courses with AICD and New Zealand ICD as well. Brace yourself for a riveting exploration of strategic brilliance as we unravel the extraordinary journey of a visionary leader who is fascinated by the philosophy of Tao Te Ching and Japanese martial arts. Adam Bennett. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be here. Beautiful. So, hey, I'm really curious. Let's kick it off. Where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were running around the playground? Uh, I grew up in Sydney, uh, so we're very lucky. I think Sydney's a fantastic city and uh, did a lot of running around the, the playground and probably early on had a uh, kind of fascination with history and military history. So I thought one day I might join the army. But uh, I never did. So uh, I thought at the time it might involve too much travel. And so uh, ironically, I ended up uh, as a consultant doing even more travel. So uh, yeah, 
went in a different direction. So, so what fascinated you about the military in a way? Like what, what was, was it the, the discipline? Was it just uh, something different? It was just a fascination with history, really. And I remember reading uh, all about things, uh, you know, probably starting when I was about sixth grade, uh, year seven, you know, classic World War Two, And by that, you kind of got to learn geography because you'd, you'd follow the campaigns and across the Pacific or Europe. And that just led to a whole thing, uh, interest in, in strategy and generals and how they organised big things because... Obviously, uh, there's a lot to learn from those who've come before us, and they're typically huge human endeavours involving millions of people. So, just really created an early fascination that's never never left me. Okay, uh, so this this may test you a little bit. So, going back to those times, were you noticing anything around their ability to adapt and and be agile with change in regards to those who were? I suppose maybe considered a bit more successful as leaders and strategists in the back in the day. Yeah, I think that always came through. I mean, there's that classic quote that a good plan lasts until first contact with the enemy, yeah. and that's quite a military maxim, really, that you have to be adaptable because you just can't control all the things that are going to happen. And so that was always a theme of. Um, you know, who were the successful generals were the ones who were able to adapt. And history is full of uh, stories about generals who tried to fight the last war and have been unsuccessful. And I think there's a lot of that in, in extends to corporate life and really anything uh, where you're trying to move an organisation forward. So I think really at an early age, I kind of was fascinated by change and ad adaptation and uh, where you just can't control all the things around you. Yeah, 100%. And did you find yourself a little bit more of a leader or follower during those formative years? Uh, probably a bit of both. So I had the typical, uh, you know, Australian childhood playing, you know, football and athletics and those types of things. Uh, I was never the, the captain of the team or anything like that. Um, as I got into my career, I just kind of came to leadership really not as a uh, I had my mind set on it. I just really wanted to always contribute more and get more uh, experience, and that naturally took me into a leadership role, which uh, was quite an evolution, really, rather than kind of you know, when I was young saying, right, I want to you know be the boss or something like that. So I just didn't have that level of ambition. Yeah, uh, when you're going into you know your first kind of roles there in consulting, did did you from a from a confidence point of view? Um, did you ever kind of self-doubt yourself going, hey, look, I've never worked in, in some of these big corporates, but here I am consulting to them. I'm giving them advice. I'm, I'm working in these teams where people got lots of experience. What was that like from a mental side of thing for you at that point? Look, uh, yeah, 100%. So I remember the first time I had to ask someone to do something where I was uh, project managing a team and I was a bit nervous how to ask someone and they were older than me. And I was thinking, well, how, are, how do I actually ask them? And I'd seen someone speak to someone just earlier in the morning and they said look i need you to do this so uh, i went up to the person and i said look i need you to do this and i just kind of copied what the other person had said and that got me on my way and um i, I kind of you know started just pushing into leadership roles and and as i did that i just got really energized by you know how do you get a team of people aligned and kind of motivated and uh delivering outcomes so yeah, so I kind of loved it. Yeah, which is good. 
you've been through a number of different roles in, in leadership and even being CEO as well. Did, did you find though that as you grew through the the confidence remained really strong or were there still times where maybe you doubted yourself or you were like, hey, I feel like I'm out of my depth here. Um, am I really the right person? Did you, did you find kind of that imposter syndrome uh, affect you at all? Yeah, look, I've, I've, I've never really felt like an imposter, but I've certainly at times um, wondered if I've got the skills or wondered if I've um, got the experience to, to do things. Um, so I haven't always had uh, strong confidence. That's built over the years as I've got, um, got kind of more experience. But I guess I've always entered any kind of job or leadership or you know, doing something with a certain degree of I want to prove that I can do it and do it really well. So I, I don't assume that I'm going to be awesome at it. Uh, and I think what that does is gives me uh, a little bit of energy and a little bit of, you know, it's good to have the hair on the back of your neck up sometimes and feel as though you, you have to be at your best and you have to really be present and turn up uh, as a leader uh, rather than just say, oh, yeah, I've got this, I, you know, I don't need to prepare. Um, I think uh, you know it's always good to um, to really, I guess, honour the privilege that you're given with regards uh, leadership and make sure you're taking it seriously and you're not taking it for granted. Yeah, this is kind of having a conversation with someone the other day in regards to when sometimes when people step up to big roles in leadership, sometimes they will surround themselves with people that they feel they may be just a little bit better than them. So they, they have a bit more confidence in themselves and then others who, and they maybe don't tend to shine as much or don't tend to be as successful versus those that when they come in are willing to surround themselves with people that are way better, that they feel are much more experienced than themselves. What did you notice with different leaders through the different companies you worked at along the way? Was it something that stood out or, or not so much? In terms of the, the people and what kind of teams they, they formed or how I approached that. Uh, how, what, what you observed along that time. Yeah, look, I've, I've seen both. Obviously, yeah, I've worked in, in lots of different organisations. Firstly, as a consultant, you know, across multiple industries and, you know, big organisations. And then I worked in, obviously, NAB, which is a, a massive organisation. So you kind of see it all. Um, you see leaders who are great at surrounding themselves by people smarter than themselves, and you see people who frankly don't. And uh, to your point, I think the uh, the ones that surround themselves with better people typically go better. Mm. Um, and they and also, frankly, they have a bit more fun along the way. And I think of you know, if I think of you know coming into a big role where I was faced with that exact dynamic, uh, I made very conscious choices. Uh, to make sure the people I had in the team were, you know, the most brilliant people I could find. Um, and then actually I said to them, look, you guys know more about this topic than I'm ever going to know in my lifetime. Yeah. And I found that was quite a good recipe for one, for them had, you know, cleared some space for them to step into uh, and actually exert the kind of leadership and kind of technical brilliance that they possessed. But equally for me, it got me off the hook from trying to... Um, bullshit them or kind of pretend that I had all the answers when I didn't. So I think, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm much more a fan of surrounding yourselves with, um, you know, really good people. And I think, yeah, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, you know, 
you're not because the, the smartest people that I've seen in the rooms, they would never think they're the smartest in the room. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's cool. Uh, adapting along the way uh, for you, you've obviously, you talked about working for different companies, also consulting different companies. So you're changing quite often. Uh, well, not, not so often, but you've changed multiple times throughout um, your career. In those changes where you're changing organization, changing industry maybe, um, or working with different people, how to what sort of skill sets did you feel you lent on a bit then to ensure that you could be agile in your mindset be able to adapt to the new environment yeah great great question i kind of use this um but i'll share the analogy i had a client once uh when i was a young consultant and he was this old you know wise old guy who was about uh mid 50s which ironically is what i am now so he seemed so old at the time and he gave me this great advice he said look when you're kind of pursuing your career, imagine you're crossing a river and always try and have one foot on a dry rock. And if you've got that, you've got the confidence and the ability to put one foot on a wet rock and kind of navigate your way across the stream. And he said, yeah, try not to have two feet on a wet rock because that could get quite slippery and dangerous, but equally don't have two feet on a dry rock because you might get bored and it's all a bit, you could become complacent. So. I've tried to use that analogy where, um, you know, you've got, you develop, everyone develops a range of skills and then how do you actually employ those skills and where do you put them? And if I think of moving from consulting into banking, for example, none of my clients as a consultant had been banking. Um, so, but the role I went into in a bank was all about project management and transformation and organisational change, which I felt was my dry rock. And so I felt comfortable changing industries and going into NAB where what my wet rock was in fact financial services and banking. So, and then of course you get into an organization, you start to learn about the, the industry and the dynamics and you know, the profit drivers and the critical success factors and all those types of things and you're away. Okay, so let's look at two things here. Uh, we've got organizational change versus say a transformation project. Okay, uh, to me, they in my mind, they're a, they're a little bit different. You know, one, you're kind of changing maybe the, the way that the people work or the, or organizing from that perspective. The other one is more, is potentially around how we do something, you know, maybe a process or something, something like that. In regards to what is important for successful organizational change versus a transformational project change, are the principles behind how to do that effectively the same or is there differences between the two? Yeah, really, really good question. I mean, I, I would say, um, you know, if you think of transformation, there's some universal principles. And so uh, I, I particularly wouldn't, um, you know, just differentiate between the two. Um, only in the sense of, I think each of them, um, you know, if you think of organisational change, that may well be required in uh transformation and vice versa and and what do i mean by that i i would think of transformation in terms of three elements which i think are important to kind of get up front number one is there is obviously something happening in your world so there is some disruption or there is some opportunity and you have to be sensitive to that and and understand what could that mean for your organization which then takes you to the second one which people understand which is strategy you know what are you going to do about it and so uh, you know, strategy is really important, having a great strategy. But what's most important then is actually how do you take action and actually 
execute and get something done. And that's where I would say uh, that will involve, depending on what you're trying to achieve, it is almost inevitable that you'll be pulling several levers of, of change. And by that, I mean, that could be your products and services that you're changing to match the market. It could be the customers you're serving, but more likely it's going to be more operational levers like business process, technology systems, organization structures, people and skills, might be facilities. And so I think to be successful, you have to be pulling multiple levers. And I think when organize, when organizations fail at transformation, they're typically overdoing some of those levers and underdoing others. And I'd say one of the levers that gets most overdone is organization structure change, mm. where people kind of change, oh, change the reporting lines. It's almost the, the illusion of progress, uh, but it doesn't change the underlying work. And uh, and frankly, the other lever that I think that's overdone sometimes is technology, where people are, oh, we'll just automate it. But if you're automating a really bad process, it just makes it go faster. So it doesn't fix it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So so we're covering a lot there on more of a strategy, a structural kind of change, etc. What are the things that are needed? What about from a human point of view, you know, human behavior point of view, a psychological um, component? Because not only do we need to maybe change how we do a process or how we do something, but there's also changing the hearts and minds of the people that are going to be involved in it. So what, what do we see in those uh, from, an, from your perspective, what's so important to be able to bring people along that journey and, and get them to buy in and, and be able to successfully transition to that new change? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things. If, if you're the leader of the transformation that you need to be aware of, one is you need to, you need to do the work. And, I, and what do I mean by that? You need to be, I guess, uh, connected to and seen to be the leader of that transformation. And I don't think that's something necessarily you can outsource to someone else or another organization. So firstly, you have to get in front of that, uh, that transformation, that strategy and say, this is what we're gonna do and own it. And here's why I'm enthusiastic about it and all that kind of stuff. And I think um, people have a very sensitive bullshit meter. So if you don't do that well, they, they kind of know, and that's almost like you, you're getting off to a bad start. Um, I think secondly, you do have to be honest and, and, and upfront and, and say to people, here is what this is going to entail. And in my experience, you'll have people in the organization who will be kind of an intake of breath. Oh my God, I wasn't expecting that. Or you might have people who go, that, that sounds really exciting. And you have people who will reserve the right to, well, I'm not so sure yet. So they're kind of sitting on the fence. And I think that's just uh, acknowledging that really human response up front is, is really important because then you have to take the people on the journey. And in my experience, you have to do that in a very honest, authentic manner. Um, because again, people know if you, if you're not really telling them, uh, the full truth. Um, and I think when you do present the, um, the story you have to develop a compelling case for change and and that really in my experience is is ticking off three things one um you've got to show how that will be better for the, the individual now sometimes it won't be and then you have to be honest about that yeah there will be in any proper transformation there will be winners and losers mm. so being being honest about that secondly i think you want to uh kind of present it as being part of something big and something that's worthwhile. 
So it's about the company, you know, positioning in its industry. It's about the company being better. It's about serving, you know, even better as you serving customers or being purposeful about its role in the community or the, our economy or the country or things like that. So I think there's a, a higher order thing. And I think the third thing is, is to make it feel as though it's right to support. So, you know, it's right for the employees to think, right, yeah, this is a, this is a worthy cause. We should put our shoulder to the wheel. So I think they're three things that can help build a compelling case for change. Is there any differences that you notice when there's a very well-known problem and we need to change versus, oh, here is a new opportunity we should change. And so, you know, obviously right now we've seen a lot of people who are going, artificial intelligence, all right, we've got to get on the bandwagon. We need to get chat GPT. Uh, that means we can remove a whole lot of staff and we can automate it there may not have actually been a problem. They've just gone, here's a new opportunity, let's go for it. So so from a, from your perspective, from both an employee and maybe even from the organization point of view, it, what sort of approaches, are there any differences in the approach, whether it's a problem versus this is a new opportunity? Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 they're both very interesting and different contexts. So. You know, where there's, for example, the need for a turnaround and there is a problem, in, in your words, where you really have to galvanise an organisation quickly to, one, admit there's an issue, secondly, craft a strategy to get out of it, and three, then really get some urgency behind getting out of that, that situation. That has its own energies and its own um, motivations and its own challenges. And, you know, in that type of uh, turnaround situation, it's almost inevitable in most contexts where you will be changing the organization fundamentally and that will result in uh, potentially loss of jobs, you know, and, and, and that's something to be taken very, very seriously because for obvious reasons. I think when it's a growth story uh, or something really exciting, the, that type of future is not as um, uh, kind of clear. And so it's more of a bit of a big adventure to the, well, how does this, how does this work? We're going to embrace these things, especially if it's a growth strategy. I think the thing with AI is AI will probably have a piece of both of those uh, elements. It will basically change people's jobs and I'm in no doubt it will, it will probably eliminate some jobs, but equally it will create new jobs and new industries and all those types of things, uh, like many technologies do. And so for some people, it's going to be extremely exciting. So again, you have that polarization of the, the workforce. Some will think, gee, I'm, you know, I'm doomed. And others will say, this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. So, um, so they, I think they are different, yeah. You talked about ownership in regards to the leader taking real ownership in this. Not only in owning that they believe that this is an important change, but also... Um, you know, in bigger companies, we'll quite often see the leader go, all right, yeah, even if they have ownership in the role, they will delegate to other people to look after those that have the polarizing differences in a way and managing those. How important is it the actual leader of the change to really be um, right at the forefront of being there with the different sides of the polarization of how people feel about change? Yeah, I... I, I have a pretty strong view that if if you want to be an effective and authentic leader, you have to um, you have to get involved in the in the potentially 
uncomfortable things. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean, the leadership coin's two-sided. You know, one side is you get to say to someone in an interview, you got the job, congratulations. You've got the promotion. Here is your bonus. Here is a pay rise. Here is a, you know, all the fantastic things that make you feel good when you're, when you're sharing that, that you. The other side of that coin is the harder things in terms of coaching, you know, your work is not good enough. You know, your performance is not hitting what it needs to, or in really um, challenging circumstances, you'll be leaving the company. Mm -hmm. So I think to be a kind of complete leader and an authentic leader, you should be, uh, you should straddle both. Now, no one likes the, the dark side of the coin around you know making people redundant those sorts of things um and i think if you if you do there's you know you're a bit of a psych corporate psychopath um but it doesn't mean you can't and shouldn't do it and because to be the leader sometimes you have to do the uncomfortable things and i think they are specifically the times when you need to step up and own it and have people not only not only do you own it but you're seen to own it and you're seen to own the decisions i don't i think it's pretty bad if someone says um, yeah, there's there's job losses, but they they kind of make out as though someone else made the decision. I think you've got to own it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I'm going to come back to the transformation, and I know you talk about a transformation triangle of disruption, strategy, and implementation. Is when it, when we look at those three key components there, you know, the disruption, the strategy, implementation. Does speed and length of each section how important is it taken into consideration how much time we should spend on each one versus you know how fast we can go um and and are the, or are they a little bit more balanced in the approach yeah um they they'll kind of take what they take and they're all they're three different um they're three different uh dynamics so if you think of disruption and identification of disruption um that might actually be sending you signals for quite a while. And those signals could be very subtle or they could be hitting you in the face. And what do I mean by that? So, you know, if you were working at, uh, if you were a director of Netflix, uh, sorry, Netflix, uh, Blockbuster, for example, in 2001, uh, you know, there was a board meeting that you went to where Reed Hastings kind of walked into the boardroom and offered, uh, blockbuster to buy his idea for an online streaming platform and they said no so the disruption actually you know manifested itself in their boardroom mm. um and yet they still didn't see that disruption you know contrast that with if you were the you know the product manager for sony walkman and you're sitting in your office in tokyo one one friday think about the weekend and you didn't realize that on tuesday uh, in October 2001, you know, Apple's going to launch the iPod and it basically killed your product within a couple of weeks. So that was very sudden. You know, they didn't know until. So I think disruption can play out either slowly or it can hit you right in the face. I think developing the strategy is you have to just get at it. And I think, uh, I think, uh, urgency is a somewhat underutilized corporate resource now. Yeah. And I think. Uh, I think we would all uh, do well to try and be a bit faster. And if you think of kind of times in the past where people, you know, really achieved big things, they did it in very, very short periods of time. And, uh, you yeah, know, again, if I referenced history, 
when I was uh, a kid, I remember reading about Napoleon who escaped from the island of Elba. And uh, you know, he made it to the mainland France and uh, within 100 days he'd formed a new government, raised an army and marched off to the Battle of Waterloo. Now, obviously he lost, but in 100 days he got some stuff done. And yeah, we live in a time where it might take you 100 days to kind of prepare a brief for a headhunter, you know, get a couple of candidates and, you know, you're not even, haven't even hired someone yet. So, and that's no disrespect to headhunters, it's just that things take longer now. So, um, so I think having urgency is a really important thing in developing your strategy and then when you get to implementation. Yeah, we do. so when we look at well-established companies, you know, that maybe have legacies of 100 years or more or even 50 years or more versus those that might be a little bit more startup and a bit fresher, in regards to transformation, is it just come down to the approach of the leadership or is it a lot harder to change you know the big titanic so to speak versus those little bit more nimble um, smaller businesses yeah i think big organizations are hard to change um and they're different contexts so if you're starting a startup you get a chance to think in advance of how do you want it to work and you can you can design because it's all so fresh and new you you're really probably struggling because there's no definition of how the system the, the entirety of the system works mm. so you get to kind of design that from scratch and you can you can use all of the knowledge you've gained and all of the tools that are now available now uh, an organization that's 100 years old i mean that complexity has built up a little bit like rings on a tree you know year after year it just gets a bit more complicated a bit more complex it does a lot of things and that's just an inevitable uh kind of function of human organizations and so then when it comes time for that organization to change it's really hard mm. uh, it's really hard to change i when i look at sport uh for instance when i look at sailing i, I love sailing as a sport it's one of the most well-established institutionalized sports been around for years and years and years um in in the in the way it values things etc but to see the advancements that happen in that sport compared to other sports is quite phenomenal when you look at uh for those who do know a little bit about sailing when you look at say the america's cup boats now where they're foiling and they're using um bikes instead of uh, you know, in, to, to propel the, the yeah. wings, etc., and, and it, so it's fascinating to see that. And so there is opportunity to be able to change the way people do. Um, and, and like when you look at a whole industry, so, so actually let's have a look at this. Let's have a look at say an industry perspective versus in an own internal company. If we're wanting to, if we're looking like transnational change in the way an industry might work, is there is there differences in that or is that not really something you have focused your attention on at all oh it's something i've, I've been really fascinated by and I, re I remember first reading um professor clay christensen's the innovators dilemma back in the day when that came out and and he spoke about this this very thing where you know many established industry incumbents found it very hard to uh, make the leap uh, as innovation changed and he spoke about um, sustaining innovations and disruptive innovations and you know to put that in everyday context you know 
the, a, a new credit card could be a sustaining innovation for a bank. Mm. You know, they're very good at it. They're, you know, uh, however, Afterpay or or Apple Pay uh, are perhaps more innovative disruptions. Uh, so disrupting innovations, and it's interesting that the banks didn't invent those. Apple did. Yeah, you know, so the banks are very good at doing what they do, but it sometimes takes another industry to or another player to challenge the industry. And I think we're seeing that probably most materially play out right now in the automotive industry. And again, I'm not an automotive expert, but just from watching what uh, Tesla is doing to the legacy automakers in terms of not only so much the product. So obviously they make EVs and you know the others are making ICE cars, but they've completely revolutionized how you make a car. Mm. So they have these big gigapress that like press out the back of a, a Model Y uh, and save kind of 300 pieces being fastened together. And they are, they have completely changed how you make a car. And as a result, their margins per car are off the scale compared to the ice industry. So, so I think, yeah. I think it is hard for big established companies to change. Huh, interesting. I mean, I mean, let's go down to human level here with uh, your, your book's called Great Change, which is, for many people, they have kind of experienced possibly the biggest change in, in their lifetime when COVID hit and, and it kind of made us rethink about the way we work, you know, what we, uh, I suppose, treasure in life, um, what, what's become important for us. And we noticed a lot of people reacted so differently. The, the range of the way people reacted and responded to that change was quite phenomenal. But in most cases, everyone already had the skill sets to deal with it, but they didn't know how to tap into it. So if you were talking uh, to a group of people or a company and you were looking at the, the people that were going to be involved in that change, not the leaders so much, but the actual people that are going to be affected by the change, good or bad, um, or, or not so much in the middle. Uh, how would you approach that from a psychology point of view or mindset? Yeah, well, I guess how would I? I guess the question is how did I? Because yeah. I, I had to, I had to lead an organisation through COVID, and I remember it being quite a challenging time. And I guess if I take my mind back to that uh, kind of February, March uh, 20, 2019 time, twenty twenty, sorry, twenty twenty time, um, it was a very unsettling period, and I can remember. Uh, ringing my regulator, in fact, on a Sunday and saying, hey, we're seeing this kind of play out. We're just giving you an advance notice that if this kind of, you know, starts to snowball, we'll be having to manage it. And, you know, uh, we had a, um, a a retail office, for example. So if people had to stay home, we'd have to shut that. And so we then had an all-hands call on the Monday and I, I just spoke and said, look, here's what we know. Here's what we don't know, what I what I established right up front was, as we know stuff, we will tell you. And so that got into a habit of every Sunday afternoon, I'd write an, all, an email to all of the staff saying, here's what we know, um, here's how we're going to kind of start the week. And I tried to just be as open and honest as possible. And if I didn't know the answer, I was very upfront about, we don't know the answer to that. We do not know what that will play out like. And... Uh, the feedback I got from the staff was they liked the honesty and they liked the, well, if we said this, we did it. And if we didn't know what we were going to do, we said that too. And they, that allowed them to kind of 
you know, have some dry rocks to use that analogy. Um, and, and that would be how I'd always approach that in terms of the psychology would be just, you know, treat people like adults, be open, honest, transparent. And if you, if you say you're going to do something, you have to do it. So pretty, pretty straightforward. Yeah. It's clarity, right? Clarity, the unknown is also clarity as long if you share it. Right? Yes. And, and I think like my observations during that time as well the one the leaders and the companies that really thrived during that time were those that were very clear that clearly articulated what they knew what they didn't know but also what the next action was going to be and it didn't matter if they got it wrong as long as people had a clear direction of what path we were choosing today and which which intersection we were going to turn right or turn left or we're going to keep going straight or or if we got the handbrake on today we're just going to hold and pause for a little bit uh, I think that's that's really important too. And I, I feel sometimes during change, those things aren't articulated too. You know, when you come to Crossroads during change where, you know, you might've put a strategy together, you've got, there's a big plan behind it, but you get to a point where things you don't always, um, don't expect sometimes, things may change. You might need to, to be agile and adjust during that time. But I don't always find that people are communicating enough along the way during change of um because in the in their mind they know what's happening the leaders know what's going on and they kind of have that presumption that other people kind of have the same thoughts and, and know what's happening but a lot of the time they're kind of lost in their own little world uh so i i feel that's important to for leaders to kind of always have that communication piece happening and looking at keeping people updated and, and being able to express when they get to a, a, a speed bump in the way or something like that. Uh, how, how have you seen successful leaders navigate the communication piece of change? Yeah, I, I think, I, you know, I agree with what you just said, Craig. And I think, um, you know, that, that kind of theme of being honest and open and treating people like adults. So sometimes I've seen uh, kind of senior leaders almost adopt a I'm like the parent type communication style and you're the children, which I find a little bit patronising. Hmm. Um, so I think number one is treat people like adults and that means you tell them as it is and also tell them there are going to be things as we progress that we don't know or we don't know exactly how they plan. And then maybe you use the word speed humps. It's inevitable you'll have some speed humps. I mean, my... You know, when I've been involved in uh, transformation, especially big technology ones, you never turn over a rock and find buried treasure. Mm. You know, it is always more complicated. It is always uh, more technically tricky. There's always some issue. You never, you literally never, oh, well, that was easier than we thought. Like, that, that's just not how big organisations are hardwired and changed. Mm. So I think naming that issue and say, look, there will be things that, we, that take us by surprise. And so then when something does, people oh, that's it, something would take place hard. So, uh, again, it comes back to having the curiosity and, frankly, the, the humility to say, look, we don't know exactly how this is going to play out. And sometimes people don't communicate because they think, well, we don't have the exact answer. And I think that sometimes can be a mistake. Um, you've got to keep people up to date with what you know. And I think if you... If you do that, you do that regularly, you build a track record of, of that honesty, people will trust you. Mm. And I think, yeah, there's that old adage, you know, 
trust arrives on a tortoise and it leaves on a horse. <laughs> and that's what happens in transformation. So the minute the, the audience don't feel like you're leveling with them or you're being completely honest with them, you tend to lose them. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. The, in regards to change, um, you know, we're talking about transformational change, etc. We There's a lot of talk around change fatigue. Um, how do we know, and, and, but there's also a lot of talk about the world's, you know, we've, uh, change has never been as fast um, in, in our time before, but it's never going to be the slow again, right? There's always that talk about that. So if we, if people keep feel that change is going to continue to accelerate, how do we balance that uh, keeping up with change and being able to change with taking those moments to take a breath so that change fatigue doesn't kick in and we lose the, the passion um, and the energy of our staff? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think we have, first off, you have to acknowledge that change fatigue is a thing. It is. And I've seen organizations that have been uh, either trying to change for too long or the programs that they've had on the go haven't delivered fast enough. And this yeah. is back to that urgency thing we discussed a bit earlier. So I, I think you have to really um, balance it out for your people. But equally, there's an organizational element to it and there is a personal element to it. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of there are all these forces playing out. and. There's always been the need to change, but I do believe the ex all these forces have accelerated. And frankly, I think there's more change ahead of us than there is behind us because the pace of change is accelerating. And I know it sounds like a cliche, um, but it's true. We have not, we just have not reached peak change. So what does that mean organizationally? That means organizationally, uh, companies will have to be good at changing. They will have to think of change as a core competence they will have to put in the the muscles of how how do you remain sensitive to what's going on in the world mm. you know how do you what are your antenna what is what are you learning you have to then be good at you know strategy and responding to that and you actually have to have one is one of your core competencies being good at change yeah because we know it's going to be an ongoing thing now for individuals i think that's also Again, being honest with them and saying, look, the days of you joining an organization and being in the same job for 20 or 30 years doing the same thing um, at the same desk is over. Mm. And and I saw that firsthand at New South Wales Land Registry Services where we had some people literally who had sat at the same desk for 20 years. Wow. And equally, we had some people who had never switched on a computer. <laughs> and I kind of felt a little bit frustrated and angry at the organization that preceded me that allowed some of their employees to to just not ever have to turn on a computer or develop some basic skills in an office environment where say look i know you don't want to learn how to turn on a computer but for your own good we're going to teach you hmm. and uh and give that person more life skills and options and development um and be kind to them you know don't indulge and say oh, i don't want to be on a computer well that's indulging them versus caring for them. You know, if you truly care for them, you're going to want to skill them up and make them more able to navigate a changing world. Yeah, you go back to your, the bank card and afterpay before. You know, it's still fascinating we see in this world where people still want to use bank, uh, you still use checks and 
let alone even using a credit card or a debit card um, versus then going on and using, you know, your tap and go or your even afterpay. So it's, it's fascinating to see how people are able to adapt or, or not to a fast changing world. It'd be interesting to see if, uh, you know, the, the upcoming generations are able to be a little bit more adaptable to change than, than maybe previous generations. Um, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not sure if you're seeing anything being at a university at the, uh, you're working at the university. Yeah, look, it's, um, I, I think it's too early to tell. Uh, I think, I think, you know, the generations coming after us are very adaptable and kind of tech savvy. And I think that's obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but equally, I know older people who are exactly those things too. So I think it's not so much a function of your age. No. It's, it's more a function of your outlook on life. Mm-hmm. And that might be uh, controversial for some, but I think, you know, someone who is alert to what's going on in the world, curious and willing to kind of try new things, I think those those attributes uh, are going to be more and more important in a, in a fast-changing world. And they're not based on your age. They're based on your temperament. And uh, I think that they're, they're going to be really important attributes for people to have. Mm. You're thinking about success and change, um, kind of thinking about the importance of speed, et cetera, and not allowing it to go too long and change fatigue. You know, I was involved in triathlon where they were bringing the states and a national body together, unification project, and it went on for, golly, over 10 years and still haven't quite got to unification yet. They're still pretty much, I got some in, some out, versus, say, watching EY, who went down the path of looking to split their company up, right? So, so rather than bringing people together, they went the opposite way. They were like, okay, let's split the company in two because of regulatory things, which meant because uh, they were both consulting and they were also auditing, they couldn't be working with the same company. So they wanted to increase their reach. Um, but they literally went down the path for 12 months, realized they weren't going to get there quick enough or they weren't ready for it and put a halt on it. And it was quite amazing just to see how the staff are responding in regards to um, some are obviously disappointed because they wanted the change. But for many, they just, just the clarity of knowing that, okay, cool, we can breathe now. We know what's going to happen for the next 12 to 24 months and we can get back and we can get focused on it so that there was no chance of change fatigue because it only went on for a year um, for something so, so big for, for a well-established company. Um, so, yeah, I've... You know, one I was in one, one I was observing one, and to be able to see those differences, um, so important when it comes to the mm. the quality of performance and the morale of your team. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's sometimes a quick no is better than a slow maybe. Mm. So yeah, I don't know the detail of of either um, uh, scenario that you you just described, but I think. Whenever a leader is 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 starting to kind of you know embrace a transformation and lead a transformation, they have to be aware of of time and and also um, you know be prepared to make the hard decisions or not, and recognize that there is actually no such thing as no decision. Yeah, and that's what I sometimes find interesting in corporate life, where someone says, "Look, we won't make a decision today." We'll, 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 we'll meet next month and then we'll, we'll have another discussion. And what we all know is that means no. Yeah. <laughs> so 
because there is no such thing as no decision. What that person has actually done is, you know, either kicked it into the long grass or wants more time to make a decision. Yeah, it's fine, but kind of acknowledge what it is. You've mm. made a decision. There's no such thing as kind of just, it sits there waiting for a decision. And I think, um, you know, if I think of the triathlon example that you used, I mean, 10 years, that's a long time, you know, kind of, and that, I don't know the circumstances, but I suspect it is not technical issues that is preventing a decision. It is human and political uh, dimensions that are preventing a decision. And and then that's a whole different topic, you know. Yeah. Or maybe even talking about it. Actually, actually yes. let's... Yeah, when we think about the way government is run in Australia and with lots of levels, the challenges they face from a political point of view, obviously we get this in in big companies as well, right? The political nature of it. The the challenges of the way the political cycle works, the the layers of government. What would, in in a perfect world, what would you love to see in regards to this structural change of something like a big government um and and you can even relate this to a company as well that will allow change to occur a lot faster um and easier than potentially what we see in today's environment yeah i mean that's a that's an interesting question um i'm certainly not a constitutional expert in terms of the the layers and levers of government and i've got a great kind of respect for people who lead our, our big government organisations. And, yeah, especially if you think back through the lens of COVID and, you know, the challenges that government departments had in terms of running and delivering services and all those types of things. So, um, however, I can talk to, I guess, my experience of um, being involved in the privatisation of a government department that became a private company. And uh, that was an interesting uh, process in terms of, you know, how do you, and how to you know how do you grab a department like that and get it more focused on the customer and what it actually does? And there are some things that you can do uh, to uh, to move an organisation in that direction, obviously. Um, but it really it really de- depends on the will of you know the leader or the, a small group of the executive and their willingness and desire to to change. Because without that. Um, there is no real catalyst to change. Um, and not only do you have to have that, that willingness, you've really then got to be able to kind of push into it and push into the discomfort uh, and, um, and make something happen in an environment where sometimes uh, people are less familiar with, with high degrees of change. Mm-hmm. And you know, that may be why they were in that organisation. They quite liked it. Yeah. So that's what they were looking for. So you've been involved in lots of companies and change and transformation. If you put your futuristic hat hat on, so to speak, and look to the future, what what do you think is going to be potentially the next big disruption that is going to require companies um, and leaders to be able to make that next great change? Yeah, I think the the two things that just jumped straight to mind, one is um, climate change and decarbonisation and... Um, what does that mean for organisations? And depending on your industry, um, you know, that could be massive. You know, that could be a massive change if you're, you know, got to move into renewables or, you know, if you're a, a coal miner, you know, what does that really mean for you? Well, that's a significant thing to get your head around and, and 
that will be be big. And anyone with a big supply chain, for example, that is touched by you know carbon intensive industries, that's going to be big. And of course, the other one you've already mentioned, which is uh, AI and ChatGPT and things like that, which are going to play out and really, really change uh, organisations. And I think you know we're all kind of familiar with technology changing certain roles and you know people being replaced by robots and things what we're less familiar with is professions being uh replaced or augmented by ai and i think that's what we're going to see and that's going to be quite big and what i think will be interesting is that not only will it be big but it will be happening in many industries simultaneously so i don't think ai will go industry by industry by industry it will happen to all industries simultaneously. And I think that may make it different to big changes we've seen in the past. And people are thinking of it through the lens, oh, maybe it's as big as the internet. Whereas I'm thinking actually, maybe it's as big as electricity. So, maybe. you know, obviously none of us were around to see that shift that electricity enabled in terms of urbanization, large organizations changing manufacturing processes changing entertainment change you know, change the societal change around that was massive mm. um but unfortunately we none of us have uh kind of any memory of that because it happened you know to our grandparents or our great grandparents i think ai is going to be a similar seismic thing for businesses mm. and it's going to create a lot of need to change yeah what i'm fascinated with both of those right the climate change and the ai you know, AI has been around for 60 plus years. Um, climate change has been talked about for probably as long, maybe longer, um, goes beyond my, my understanding. But, you know, it, it, it takes something to happen still, though, for it to accelerate to a point where everyone's got to change. <clears throat> and so these are quite big things. And, yeah, I'm, I'm still wondering what it's going to be with climate change in a way because it still seems like a bit of fatigue on that already you know we've been talking about it feels like it's been dominant for so long but i wonder what's going to be the catalyst for that to really shift our way we do things and even to a certain extent the same with ai you know like we're still yes there was a lot of big talk etc this year but still and some have shifted and played and, and made big statements around it but still there's it's still it's still not making that big jump yet so i'm wondering what it's going to be so i'm kind of curious um yeah 100 i mean the i'm curious too and if, if you if you take your mind back to the late 90s early thousands there were similar frankly there were similar graphs published by like gartner and forrester and and, and some of the consulting firms around you know take up an impact of the internet and all of the all the curves were really flat and then they started to go exponentially up up the and you know for the first couple of years not much seemed to happen and then suddenly it was boom everything was happening and i think maybe these will, will be of a similar nature where we are still in the early days but it's a bit what i was saying about before what is our antenna mm. and our sensitivity to disruption telling us now and subtle signals you know who's listening uh how do you interpret it how do you think well, what's that going to mean and it doesn't mean it's knocking and barging on your door but it might be quietly tapping and so therefore 
how sensitive are you and do you start thinking about it? Because I guarantee someone will be thinking about it yeah. and they'll be starting to change their business models or their organisations or put in place things as almost like corporate um, optionality so that if something transpires or something happens in the way they think, they'll be ready. Yeah, that's good. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Yeah. Um, so I try and do something new uh, every year. And there's this, this great uh, Japanese concept called Shoshin, which means beginner's mind. And uh, it's a, a kind of reminder to always be open and curious about new experiences or you know, approach an experience you know in a new way. Um, so the last thing I recently did was I got my uh, motorbike license and bought a Vespa. And uh, so that's been quite fun. <laughs> I love it. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, the one question I'd love to solve. Um, well, I guess a question that comes to mind from when I was a kid, when I was a little boy, kind of reading about rockets and space and those types of things. And I remember, um, I remember reading that the universe is expanding. And I remember reading it's, you know, it's expanding like a massive balloon in a room. And I've always wondered, yeah, but what's on the other side of the balloon? So what's it expanding into? And I've no idea. And I don't know whether the, the physics professors know, but um, yeah, I've always, I'd love to know what's on the other side of that balloon. Oh, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, for you, what as an inspiring great leader and who's a great example of this for you? Okay. Um, well, if, if I start with the what, I, I guess a, for me, a, a great leader would have to uh, tick off two things. So number one is they get stuff done. So they don't just talk about it. They actually produce outcomes. And secondly, they produce those outcomes in a way where, you know, they take people on the journey and their behavioral attributes, uh, they, they're kind of good people, so to speak. And, you know, they're trustworthy, they're high integrity, all those types of things. So I think, you know, um, if you get stuff done, but you're not a nice person, then I wouldn't say you're, you're a good leader. And equally, if you're a really good person, but you just can't get anything done, then you might struggle as a leader as well. So that would be how I'd define it. And if I think about you know, leaders that I've been inspired by, probably someone that jumps to mind is um, Barbara Jordan. I'm not sure if you know Barbara Jordan, but um, she was a US Congresswoman, African-American Congresswoman, and uh, very junior when uh, she was asked to sit on a panel to decide whether to uh, indict Richard Nixon as part of the Watergate scandal. And this scandal had obviously been playing out and Everyone had lined up along party lines, partisan lines, and everyone was just waffling on about why he either should or why he should not be indicted. And uh, she was a very junior um, congresswoman, and she started to speak about uh, what the Constitution was, uh, what her responsibility and obligation to that Constitution was, and then just lay out the case in kind of for high crimes and misdemeanors in such a simple, compelling way with such intellectual honesty that basically when she spoke for 13 minutes instead of a couple of hours like everyone else, but at the end of 13 minutes, 
Um, the uh, the press went nuts, and within a couple of days, they'd made the decision to indict uh, Richard Nixon. So uh, I think it's a really good example of someone just using their their personal attributes and really getting to the core of the issues and being able to take people on the journey and get something done. So. Maybe there's a case for a Barbara Jordan in US politics in regards to a recent former president right now, maybe. <laughs> it's certainly topical, isn't it? Certainly topical. Uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun uh, talking today and learning lots along the way. So how can uh, our listeners learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so uh, connect with me. I'd love to, to meet people. So uh, go to www.greatchangeconsulting.com.au, so my website. Uh, and also, I've just finished writing a book. So if uh, if they're interested in any of the topics uh, we've, we've mentioned, um, I've got a book coming out published by Wiley uh, this month. So Beautiful. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I Adam, I, I love that kind of understanding of where this came about for you you know when it where you're looking at history um and even the strategy etc you know and you thought that maybe might take you in one path but then you you realized you know consulting was the way to go for you and you've and you've gone through that whole process to leading you know companies through transformation as well as consulting it having your own small company now working for big companies so you see a really wide spectrum and it's great listening to you because you you bring different perspectives from you know both sides you know different sides of the the ball or the plate so to speak uh, your insights into how we can approach change and the understanding of the importance of keeping it simple you know thinking about the time and speed that we do how do we bring people along the, the importance of humans in it um, but also having that antenna i, I love that you know that we spoke about the antenna for change and just kind of having that awareness and, and looking forward to potentially what is going to happen and being kind of prepared for that i think a lot of we, we watch a lot of people who are just kind of stuck in that present moment of we're doing this this is working or we need to change this but you know having the blinkers on to maybe what's happening out there beyond the universe so to speak beyond that that balloon you were talking about uh, earlier um, so thank you very much for your time today. It's It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks very much. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>